The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 22 of the Ascent of Board Games. Yay! For those of you who may have joined us recently, thank you all. Welcome aboard. For those of you who don't know who we are other than these random people talking in your head. I'm Brian. I'm Jason. I'm Mike. I'm Frank. And I'm a robot named Joe. Shoot him! (laughs) Yes. We're all people who like games, and hopefully you do too. Thank you for listening. Welcome aboard. Leave us an iTunes review if you have a chance. They really help us attract new people who are almost as cool as you. This month, we are here to talk about skirmish games. This is one of those areas that sort of verges outside of board games, can get a little bit into the miniature game stuff, but there seemed to be interest on the poll, and also some of us like them, so we were going to talk about them. Although figuring out what they were, I think actual blood was spilled this time. Yeah, I mean, like, there's an infinite number of options for the list of possible skirmish games. And you know what, guys? I'm not entirely convinced that most of those votes on the polls wasn't just Brian saying, Malifo, 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 Malifo. He did write a bot. It's fine. <laughs> I haven't voted since we first put up the poll and I did some test votes. But just some foreshadowing, Brian might be talking about Malifo. I mean... I've already forced it into this podcast on a couple occasions when it totally wasn't relevant. Now it actually is. You're not prepared. So skirmish games are basically small-scale conflict games, usually two players, and generally each counter or figure is one entity, one ship, one one person. It's a very one-to-one scale when it comes to war or miniature-based games. You know, in a lot of war games, dudes might represent platoons of people. Nope. This is one dude, one miniature. Yeah, it's more like tactical versus strategic, right? You're doing a single battle, not the whole war. Yep. So as far as war simulations go, there's kind of the granddaddy of them all, which has been around in one variation or another for a very long time. Yeah, chess. Chess was kind of designed to do that kind of each piece has their own personality movement. Although you generally don't do warfare by lining up a bunch of guys in front of you. Well, actually, oh, the do. British are like that. Yeah. <laughs> then you have all the nobility in the back. But figuring out where that idea of having different pieces, having different powers, it's hard to say where that came in. When you look at the history of chess, that whole tactical thing started with a game called Siga, which is an Egyptian game from... Oh, the console. C- oh, Siga, sorry, sorry. S-E-E. Siga. <laughs> Basically, in Sega, you capture a guy by being on both sides of him. At that point, he dies. Okay. That was kind of copied by the Greek and then became a Roman game called Ludus Latrunculorum. The game of something. The game of mercenaries, I think, is what it actually oh, okay. is. Which, again, right. has that same thing where you have to capture a dude by being on both sides of him. At some point, versions of that game, either the Greek or the Roman game, included the idea of a captain piece. Which, you know, if you take the captain, something cool happens, or you can promote a piece to the captain, or something. When you get to these ancient games, you've got a bunch of pieces in a map, and then some historian made up some rules, basically. Yeah, this is how we think it worked based on the the pictures of people playing it. Yeah. The first one we definitely know is the Toffle games, which have kind of a siege situation, where you've got a king in the middle surrounded by a bunch of his guards, and then a bunch of people on the outside who are trying to take it. The best known of those is Tenethoffel, 
Oh. It's easy for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's a whole category of TOEFL games. I just want to ponder that job for a moment. Like, could you imagine thousands of years from now, somebody uncovers something like, I don't know. Agricola. Agricola. <laughs> and it's just like, look at all these wonderful wooden pieces they used. Taking a bunch of pieces for a game that are not going to deteriorate within a hundred years and then trying to figure out the hell they were doing with them. Amazing. Hopefully they'll find like one set of archival information, which is going to be the dragon's tomb. Yeah. <laughs> we did talk a little bit more about the TOEFL games in our asymmetrical games episode, because that was also one of the, the first asymmetric sort of yeah. off. At some point, Chaturanga came in, which was an early version of chess on a nine by nine grid. And then definitely chess came out of India, Persia kind of almost 1300s mm -hmm. uh, but when you talk about first sega you're talking about what 2000 bc yeah so somewhere between 2000 bc and 1300 one of those games is our first yeah, but I couldn't tell you which. We don't have designer and publisher information, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, good news about chess is that it has not been out of print for hundreds and hundreds of years. So you've got a pretty good shot of finding a copy wherever you happen to be going. And whatever variant you want. Yeah. Star Wars, Star Trek, just like Monopoly. Yep, <laughs> exactly. Although the game tends to be better than Monopoly. Yeah. Well, at least people can agree on the rules. <laughs> yes. One thing that I wanted to mention in this time period, it's not actually on our list because it's not really a game, is a book called Little Wars, which was written in 1913. It's sort of the first set of, of modern rules that we know about for playing with toy soldiers functionally. It was written by a fellow by the name of H.G. Wells, who is maybe better known for some of his other writings. I think I've heard of him. The full title is Little Wars, a game for boys from 12 years of age to 150, and for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys' games and books. Wow. <laughs> there's also a ton of social commentary. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Oh you know, that is surprisingly <laughs> forward-looking. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not a surprise from H.G. Wells, but... But, but uh, damn, it's a lot of shade right there. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> they actually have some photos in the books of them doing this at the time, because these were mostly lead-cast soldiers, which, you know, explains a lot. Um, Lick them, no, they're I'm delicious. Sure it's fine. They have exactly. rules for cannons that actually shoot things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're totally knocking them over. <laughs> but then all sorts of movement rules, buildings, terrain. Yeah, you're in the yeah. living room floor with all kinds of terrain, you know, have pieces of string to measure out movement and everything. Or garden, or garden. Sure, For sure. your proper yeah, absolutely. And these people definitely didn't have pets. <laughs> There's no way. So how many points do I get for shooting my opponent's eye out? <laughs> 30. Oh, okay. I think that means I win. Well, no, the Maybe. medical establishment wins. That's just an interesting historical footnote. That was definitely much more of the large-scale stuff than skirmish games, but I thought it was cool. So we're going to talk about our next game in stages here, because much like chess, it has gone through several iterations over history. And the most recent one is probably one of my favorite strategy games called Confusion. In 1946, Carlet produced Stratego, which was made by Jacques Johann Morgendorf. But it didn't start fully formed as Stratego. It actually went back to 1906. Uh, 1909 uh, oh, was a game called Le Attack, which is French, as you might imagine. For what? We may never know. What I'm about to do to you, Jason. <laughs> Google Translate will take care of it. That's it's fine. fine. Designed by Hermance Edan, it was basically a game where you had a bunch of numbered pieces that you can see the numbers and your opponent can't. Frank, being Frank, has also found an even earlier predecessor. Uh, that's Zhengxi, which appears to be Chinese for land battle chess game. The dates on that are a little vague. 
But was it the same kind of hidden, totally, hidden yeah. value of your it's pieces? Stratego. So, Stratego is one that is best known to us Western types because, you know, at least in my youth, it was one of the games that almost every household had a copy of. I still remember the classic terrible television commercials because <laughs> all board games had terrible television commercials back in the day. Like they do. Basically, you have a bunch of pieces that have, have various hidden values and you have to try and get to your opponent's flag by attacking their pieces with your pieces that are stronger. There was a spy piece, which is like defeated by everybody except the general. My absolute favorite piece is the bomb. Yes. Nothing's more satisfying than someone tossing their most powerful unit against the bomb and dying instantly. Yes, bomb kills everything except the miner. Yes, that's why my brother never plays the game with me. Because <laughs> you bombed him? I bombed him like once when we were children. He's like, never again. No, we're done. But yeah, like this is one of the first, I guess, skirmish games that I ever played. It's definitely the first for me. And of course, in the early stages, most games were pretty much talking about a square grid with pieces moving in straight lines and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's very abstract. Yep. Still a good kind of exposure to the general concept of trying to figure out where your enemy's weak and doing that kind of thing. I'm not sure how much strategic depth there is to it. A little bit. I think it's a lot of luck. <laughs> and a lot of bluff. Sure. Yes. I was so mean to my little brother. <laughs> I would shocked. deliberately not move my number one unit, whatever that's called, right? Oh, yeah. And like he would assume it's a bomb and send his miner after it. And he's like, no, no, you're just dead. <laughs> I think it is one of those games where if you play with the same person more and more, the metagame becomes really interesting. And then, of course, in our deduction games episode, we talked about confusion, which is like Stratego, except you don't know how your pieces move and your opponent does. So it's wonderful and bizarre, and you should listen to that episode to hear more about it because it's crazy. Yeah. So I want to talk about this little game just in passing called Chainmail 1971. It was released by Gooden Games. Designed by Jeff Perrin and Gary uh, Gigax, I think. Yeah, something like that. I think he's French, maybe. It is playing small-scale miniatures, man-to-man skirmishes, you know, medieval fantasy kind of stuff. Joe, tell me, were there dungeons in this game? No, no dungeons. Were there dragons in no, this no game? Dragons. No, no dragons. No, okay. However, people who played Chainmail did think, hey, we could probably do some stuff with this. It did evolve into a game that had both Dungeons and Dragons in it, which is still played to this day. This other guy named Dave Arneson. <laughs> Arneson. I think they're all French. I don't know. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. For those of you who go way back in the uh, World of Greyhawk setting for D&D, Jeff Perrin was, of course, the inspiration for Perrinland. Because oh, all of Gygax's old stuff was basically named after people. I mean, half the character names were just somebody's name backwards. Yeah. So. The original base game of D&D actually listed the attack system from Chainmail as the primary system with an alternate d20 based system <laughs> fascinating yeah when that, that one has carried on a little bit <laughs> yeah it's worth mentioning jeremy crawford is um he's the main editor for DD right now and he told a story at one of the paxes i went to where he actually went and played war games with gary gygax at his uh, actual house and for the 80s kid in me i was super happy to learn that they played them with gi joe figures and vehicles <laughs> yes. and they made up their own game systems I'm like yes <laughs> i want that game <laughs> Jason, I'm still waiting for you to develop a Transformers role-playing game. No, there's a card game, Mike. I don't need to make a role-playing game for it. No, but what are we going to do with all your models? There needs to be a skirmish battle game for all the Transformers. I mean, you've got three of all of them, right? One for trading, (laughs) one for keeping in the package, and then one for playing an awesome miniatures game that you develop. I'm like one step removed from being that ridiculous. (laughs) I think we can get you there. I mean, probably. I might lose my husband over it, but... (laughs) But you'll have Transformers. Oh, well, you know. Also, we might have to take his kickstarter away so i don't know man that's a battle right there i couldn't survive that withdrawal (laughs) 
Also on our list of firsts would be Sniper from 1973 by Simulations Publications, Inc., designed by Jim Dunnigan. It's a house-to-house fighting game set in World War II. And the interesting thing is this is kind of our first box game, the first time we get, you know, here, here's your skirmish game. Although the definition of box is weird because it came in what's called the classic SPI Tombstone box, which meant you got a little counter tray, paper map, and then paper rules, and then some piece of paper on top, and the flimsiest plastic cover ever. Yeah. Yeah, war games were always like that. And this is pretty much your classic cardboard counters, stacks of things with conditions and stuff on them. It is. It's worth noting that uh, the idea of it is like house-to-house combat in World War II. And I guess for making line-of-sight rules easier, all the buildings are like weird trapezoidal shapes instead of squares. And they're shifted to follow the hexes. And uh, to make it super serious, the the map is also Pepto-Bismol pink, which I thought was an odd choice. (laughs) Mm, Lovely. (laughs) So you're not used to seeing games from the 70s, are you? (laughs) No, I mean, not really. I mean, I can't. I can't think of any that I had that, well, <laughs> my parents had a game of triominoes from the 70s. Does that count? <laughs> um, no. In a way, yeah. It's much more oh, like an that, activity. That dim Sorry. brown and kind of, wow, that's ugly. Yeah, totally. You got a lot of that. I mean, to be fair, the early 80s had some of that too. You are not wrong. Another one from that same time period that is, again, one that we need to mention primarily because there's a certain generation of gamers who would be very upset if we didn't, is Battletech, which originally came out in 1985 from FASA, designed by Jordan Wiseman, Forrest Brown, and L.R. Butch Leaper, which is a pretty good name for a war game guy, Butch. This is giant robots with dudes in them jumping around the battlefield and fighting each other. I'd say this is the giant robots battling with people. It was certainly the one that hit it big in the U.S. There were a certain number of early robot designs that were uh, subject to some copyright litigation and eventually removed for a long time because they looked a little bit too much like certain anime uh, giant robots. By which he means exactly the same. Also, yes. To be fair, FASA did license the rights to use those mech designs. It just turns out that the company they licensed them from didn't have the rights to sell them. But yeah, this one was a lot of fun. I mean, it's still going today. There's computer version out, which is surprisingly good. They just re-released the Master Rule set a few years back that combines everything together. One thing that was always kind of neat is it's hex-based, and you do need to worry about facing, but sort of the top half of the robot can twist, so you may be walking this way and turning that way to fire. Stupid levels of detail where you're tracking the individual pips of armor on each location of your thing and what's stored there. And if you get through the armor, you roll a die to see what thing in that section hits. And if you hit somebody's ammo storage, they, you know, blow half the robot off. Fun times. So let's move on to the first game we're going to kind of actually discuss in a little bit of detail, uh, which is Space Hulk, released in 1989, published by Games Workshop and designed by Richard Halliwell. Speaking of games that are suspiciously close to other intellectual properties... (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about, Brian. I'm I'm very confused. You mean like the alien was stolen from the Tyranids? Something like that, (laughs) maybe. I think that's that's the order. I think you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. More like World of Warhammer craft. (laughs) You've got a bunch of soldier-type people going through this thing that is full of aliens, and sometimes there are just blips on the radar, and you don't know where they are. So yeah, there there was a similarity there. Yeah, I like this game a lot. It's really cleverly designed, right? So the Space Marine player who's in the Terminators is very bulky and slow moving and everything's the worst. But they can shoot. (laughs) But they can shoot. They have range. Yes. As a gene stealer, right? You don't have any range. You just try to run up and make sweet love to the Terminators. (laughs) But you don't have any guns. So if they get a beat on you, you're in trouble. It's scenario based. 
there's a whole campaign going through basically where you're you're making your way through the ship and trying to figure out how to and destroy extra it. scenarios, two expansions in the first edition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a now in its fourth or fifth edition. Yeah, and there's a digital implementation of it as well, which mm-hmm. is solid. Yeah, it's fine. I wouldn't say it's great, but it is good. Yep. There was actually a computer version in the early 90s, which I have very fond memories oh, of. Oh, yeah. It was basically a, a simulation of the board game, but I just remember, you know, you have your guys who sort of plot up two squares, and you guard this corridor, and you guard that corridor while everybody else goes through. It was all done from the POV of the characters, so you had this little view screen, <laughs> oh, and you had the great. little other view screens of what the other Marines were seeing, so it was a lot of fun. It is funny. You get this weird dissonance when you play the game for the first time if you're not super familiar with the the 40K universe because you see these giant plodding guys in huge armor and it's just gone like tissue paper whenever they get itched. Like, why are they even wearing it? (laughs) Like, there's no reason for it. And it also, you know, me and Dice, we're not friends. (laughs) The fact that bolters can jam as frequently as they do in that game drives me insane. Like, who's maintaining these guns? (laughs) This is so stupid. The rights of reloading have not been properly practiced. (sighs) Yeah, that must be it. (laughs) So I will be the first to admit that I am not the most well-versed in 40K lore, but there is a bit of disconnect from what I know about Space Marines in other games where, like, they're not supposed to be slow plotting. Well... Terminators in particular, I'll put my Warhammer nerd hat on. <laughs> okay. General Space Marines are actually pretty mobile. They still wear heavy armor, but yeah. they're s- stupid strong. But Terminators are basically the mobile tanks. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they're like the hulking tanks. Yeah. However, normally their armor does something. <laughs> yeah, fair. Fair. Turns out Gene Stillers have really good claws. Yeah, you know. Apparently they're all Wolverine. <laughs> well, on the tabletop, the Terminators are very effective, but also in the tabletop, Gene Stealers are very effective against Terminators. If you step back and you know a lot about Warhammer, it does a pretty faithful job kind of recreating the lore in the universe, right? So, like, the most recent edition, right, was, like, very specifically, hey, you're a Blood Angel company and all kinds of, like, specific rules around that. So, like, it... Originally, I think it was the Deathwing, which is part of the Dark Angels, I think. Uh, yes. Sorry. Speaking of nerd much, Too much nerding going on. (laughs) I'll stop now. One thing that's always struck me about Space Hulk is it's a really good tactical game. Yeah. I mean, really hardcore. And the rules are, especially when the the fourth and fifth editions are dirt simple. Yeah. Um, And they've streamlined them down to a level of, oh, that's a breeze. No combat results tables for something in the 80s. That was just brilliant. Mm -hmm. And like one of the things I think is really brilliant about the game is one of the ways they simulate Terminators being hulking is as a Terminator player, you get a set amount of fixed time in space to play your turn. And as a Gene Steelers, you get as long as you want, right? And so it's like you're constantly under time pressure as the uh, space ring player. But like in all honesty, you're playing the stronger units, right? Because you have guns and your captain of the sword is also really good in combat if he gets up against a Gene Steeler. Sadly, if your normal guys get in melee with a Gene Steeler, kind of not good. Yeah, and from a numbers perspective, you've got like, you know, five Space Marines versus a functionally infinite number of Gene Steelers, so. Yeah, and this game will teach you to be terrified of corners. Oh, God. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't have enough action points to, to get to this corner and turn. I think I'll just stand here yeah. and hope. <laughs> this hull's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Interestingly, the original release of Space Hulk predates the original release of Warhammer 40K. 
Huh. Wait, really? Uh, yeah. the, the Rogue exactly. Trader game was out, which uh, was sort of the spiritual predecessor to 40K, but Space Hulk was the first kind of mass market one. And really, that's kind of when they got the basic 40K rules and D6 rolling down. So yeah, all of Warhammer descends from Space Hulk. That's so interesting, because like, in my mind, and I, I came to Warhammer very late, in my mind, it's always been Space Marines versus Chaos Marines. And it, apparently, originally, it was Space Marines versus Gene Stealers or Tyranids. <laughs> mm-hmm. not, not the association I normally make. Yeah. Yeah, but that's really where most of it started. Oh, that's Look, cool. guys, can we all just step back for a moment and talk about the Tau? No, no, no. no one talks well, about the Tau. No one cares about the Tau. The who? I'm going to go my, back to my corner now. I literally didn't know the Tau existed until you started playing <laughs> Warhammer. I was like, wait, there's another race? I've read a lot of Warhammer books. They've never shown up. <laughs> all right, moving on. We're going to start an ode to Stephen Baker, who no one's really heard of. He designs a little game called Hero Quest, Space mm. Crusade, you know, Battle Masters, which I wanted to include on this, but those are big armies. But he did this game called Die Schlachter Dinosaurier, Battle of the Dinosaurs. That's a good name. That's totally. A strong name. I mean, yeah, good strong name. It was only published in Germany. Unless Restoration Games saves us, please, if oh, you're listening. Time yeah. to interview Rob again. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but uh, basically, each player has these 15 giant freaking dinosaurs. They technically do break our one-to-one rule because some of the dinosaurs have little guys on top of them. Might be three or four guys, but yeah. I'll accept that as a cavalry unit. Yeah, we'll accept it as a cavalry <laughs> unit. You have the brontosaurus. It's a good six inches long. Nice. Yes. The minis are awesome. And this kind of takes an early Memoir 44 kind of take on it. You have a hand of cards that represents which group of dinosaurs you can move. And you can use that card to either move them or attack with that number. You basically add that to your die roll. And this is multiplayer, so it's really best as a four-player game, where the game ends as soon as one person loses their last unit, the person with the most dinosaurs on the board wins. As soon as that tie's broken, that's hmm. the game. But there's a lot of really weird, clever ideas in here. You're given a, uh, a small supply of, well, crunch berries. They're these little... <laughs> They look like freaking crunch berries. We call them crunch berries. They're little lava. Do they taste like crunch berries? No, they taste like plastic. I was going to say. You can use one to basically play a card again, so you can move and attack with it. You get three actions per turn. But when you use it, you have to drop it into the volcano in the middle of the board, and there's a baffle on it. Half the time it comes back into play, and there's a card which redistributes them. Half of the time it goes out of play, and it's gone forever and ever, based on a little just random drop in the middle of the oh man this has restoration games written all over it oh, yeah, yeah no, totally. I'm, I'm feeling it i'm feeling it already so best of all is the die design for this game creatures roll from one to four dice and they add whatever their card is but like the pterodactyls are really only roll one die but then they have some bunch of cards that read plus 10 so they're really good on attack but terrible on defense. so basically you're just dropping rocks yeah basically but um, the actual dice are 0, 1, 2, 5, 10, 15. <laughs> oh They're the most capricious wow, dice wow. in the history of the universe. <laughs> so if you want to talk about a random fest, th- this oh, is yeah. your game. But yeah, when you when you get that brontosaur coming up with four dice, taking on some wimpy little tiny, <laughs> tiny raptor who's just going, oh my God, don't kill me. And the raptor wins. <laughs> and there's like a massive shout at the table. You just table. hit the jugular. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, seriously, we talked earlier about how they used to play chainmail with G.I. Joes. But it's like, this is definitely just a 90s kids with some dinosaur <laughs> action figures. Oh, totally. Just going at it. <laughs> I like it. And there is a little bit of thought there, but no, it's about rolling dice good. And it's an awesome game. It's sort of the game. quintessential Ameritrash game right there. Absolutely. In Germany. Sure, well. <laughs> yeah. You know. 
How did this not get released in the I U.S.? I don't know. How? It's got a big Milton Bradley box. They needed one commercial on a Saturday morning, and they would have sold out a print run. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> the figures are gorgeous, honestly. Oh, they're so great. Oh, yeah. I love that the pterodactyl even has a flight stand. Like, he's actually in flight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and with a guy riding on top of it. Of course. Like you do. Seriously, you could reskin <laughs> this into Dino Riders with zero effort. <laughs> it's yeah. so easy. So in 1995, Games Workshop came out with Necromunda, designed by Andy Chambers, Jervis Johnson, and Rick Priestley. And this is basically a stand-in for a whole bunch of Games Workshop skirmish games. They have done a lot of them. They have stood out for a long time because apparently they realized that not everybody has the time or inclination to buy and paint several hundred units of Space Marines. So you get small little gangs together. And Necromunda was quickly followed up by the incredible Mordheim, which included one of the great campaign systems where your little team levels up, loses limbs, etc. <laughs> and it's set in Warhammer in a warpstone-infused city that you're looting. So you're getting mutated all the time, and it's lovely. And it's, I think, the best of the series for me. But that led on to Kill Team. Yeah, Warhammer Underworlds. Underworlds is actually really interesting. The teams are pre-built, so basically if I'm playing this particular crew of Stormlight Eternals, I have these three dudes, this is my army, their stats are always the same, but you are building a deck of cards. You have a deck of sort of bonus action cards and a deck of objective cards and way to score points. It's three to seven units on a side, games last three turns, and it's basically whoever scores the most points in three turns wins. Generally you play a set of three games, and you're still looking at, you know, maybe maybe 90 minutes for a full yeah, set it's like really that. Like 30 it's minutes very fast playing. It's very clean. The models are snapped together, but they are amazingly beautiful sculpts. Oh, considering yeah. the way they've put them together, I'm just super impressed. The level of detail that you get in these snap hit models is crazy. And Underworld's their newest one in this kind of line of skirmish games? Well, no, because there's also Blackstone Fortress. No, Blackstone Fortress is a... Um, it is more of a board game, I it, guess. Yeah, I think that's a standalone. It's a co-op. That's a dungeon crawl. Yeah. The Underworld series is actually Shadespire, Night Vault, Beastgrave, and Dreadfane. Yeah. Oh, there you go. We were just at PAX, and there's a digital version of it now, too. There is. I have it. It's still kind of in early access, and they're still obviously fixing things, but it looks to be a pretty faithful representation. Which, uh, do you know which flavor it is? Like, is it just Shadespire? Uh, so far, there's only like four crews, which are all from the original one, but I'm sure they're going to add more oh, yeah. as DLC. Of course. As time goes on. But is there Tau? <laughs> This is, this is fantasy, Mike. Oh my There's God. no Tau. Well, I mean, there could be. Isn't fantasy just part of 40K now? Didn't, th didn't that happen? Well... There's a whole thing going on there. Right. That, we'll save that for our 40K podcast. Chris Russell is desperately trying to get me to play Kill Team. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, huh. Kill Team, yeah, is Kill Team the was super latest. good. Like, Kill Team was yeah, super no, good. I'm, and they just released a new edition, which is apparently really good. So, Oh, my God. Kill Team has this gorgeous terrain that comes with yeah, it. Yeah, some of the terrain is pretty a spectacular. A little 2 by 2 battlefield, which looks jaw-dropping. Yeah, Games Workshop is nothing if not good at making pretty plastic. I think they're actually the best at making pretty plastic. Certainly on, on scale, yeah. Come to think of it, they also gave us Gore Chosen, which yes. is a chaos a warrior arena battle game. We could, in fact, do an entire episode on Games Workshop. On just Workshop. Games Workshop. In 2002, WizKids came out with Heroclix, designed by Monty Cook, Jeff Grubb, Seth Johnson, John Lighthizer, Jeff Quick, and Jordan Wiseman. So a lot of names that are familiar there. What makes this one particularly interesting is that A, you got pre-painted plastic miniatures, and the paint jobs were not great, but they were fine. These were your classic Marvel and DC superheroes. The interesting thing is that the stat tracking was all done on the miniature itself. There's a little dial on it, and as you take damage, your stats would go down, or up in some cases. 
and you do the, the fighting that way. And of course, everybody had their special powers. It's actually still around now. It's still getting a decent amount of play. The other thing was, this was kind of the miniatures version of the collectible card game craze. Basically, yeah. you would buy a booster pack and there would be some figures in it. So you would wind up with 87 copies of Hawkeye <laughs> and maybe one Black Widow kind of thing. So, Like you do. Like you do. But it's not a bad game. It was certainly, at the time, it was really the only way to go in and get some decent superhero figures and fight back and forth. So, so just as a point of reference for that time in the CCG universe, the Pokemon card game had just come out one year before in 1996 and was the impetus of the Pokemon craze across North America. Yep. And apparently there were people who realized there was money to be had. And they did Mage Knight as a predecessor to that, which we probably couldn't talk about because I think troops in Mage Knight are supposed to represent more than one. It's hard to tell. (laughs) So I was just peeking over Brian's shoulder over here as he was on the website. Looks like there's a Watchmen edition to this. There is a Watchmen edition. Can I have Dr. Manhattan? Because I just want (laughs) to win every time because that sounds great. (laughs) Is the figure naked? I hope the figure's naked. (laughs) I'm sure it's not. I 100% guarantee that it's not. I want Vietnam War, Dr. Manhattan with his dong just hanging out, vaporizing people. No, he is wearing wearing a privacy bikini. Yes, exactly. Now that said, you do want to customize your miniatures to some extent. I also remember there was a very short-lived Shadowrun version of this where the figures were about six inches tall. There was like three or four dials on the base to track their hit points and their mana and everything. They had little accessories that you could put on them, like, you know, the street mage could be holding the pistol or the wand or the spirit. And they were great little figures. I think there were only about four of them produced, and I have two of them. And they did a Battletech Clicks game just to bring uh, us back to the right. circle. You're right. I actually got really into that one. Yeah. I actually still have those miniatures somewhere. They're pretty good because you actually had like little platoons of dudes not in robot suits which were done to scale with the actual robots just looking around joe's room here i remember star trek fleet captains does something very similar where it's got a base where you'd say i'm going to focus on science this time or i'm going to focus on combat this time and i think there's a third one i can't remember what it is right now but i actually really like that system i thought it was kind of cool that you're like i'm going to pull all power into shields or whatever and it would modify your stats for whatever task you're trying to accomplish yeah that base click system was really a clever idea i think if it hadn't been collectible booster pack driven if it hadn't been collectible like that i think it could have been a better game in the long run but apparently it's done pretty well for and, them so. you know occasionally even now i think whiz kids will come along and there's probably some guy who asks at every design meeting can we put clicks into this <laughs> i don't know what to ask zev <laughs> it's still really popular i mean they have every year at dragon con so yeah totally yeah, yeah there's still tournaments at gigabytes our friendly local game store you'll commonly see them in comic book stores too <laughs> i think Get that crossover market exactly yeah like just imagine though if the fantasy flight's living card game system had been popular back in the 90s where it's like here's just a pre-made set that will always contain these exact figures if they had applied that sort of mentality to the hero clicks i wonder if it would have been as popular as it was there's that for lack of a better term that addiction of like opening up a random Mm -hmm. pack and seeing what awesome thing you get but also the retailers jumped on board with that you've got two skews starter set booster and you're done yep True. So true. they were into carrying a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I personally stayed out of it specifically because I'm like, I don't like gambling. <laughs> I don't especially don't like gambling. with wait, wait, wait. stuff. You spend so much money on Kickstarter. How can you say you don't like gambling? <laughs> the rate of return is better than when I gamble. I'll say that. OK. That's but, fair. Uh, no, not really. <laughs> I, two dates. And I, I'm sure I'm screwing myself by saying this out loud. Two don't dates. do it. Don't do it. I've backed some of the same things you have. Don't say it. <laughs> 
Anyway, if they had uh, released like an X-Men pack, they would have had my money immediately. Just, I think they have. Like a, just by themselves, all oh, the X-Men? Well, no, but I think they've done like a Heroclix X-Men. Oh, I guarantee no, they, they have. Sure. Yes, I, I want them all. Just give them to me in one shot. Yeah, that's called eBay? No. <laughs> Not going down that rat hole. We'll talk about another game in a little bit. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> so our next game would be Star Wars Epic Duels. This is kind of weird because it was such a surprise, just came out with almost no notice. And we're going to kind of sneak Stephen Baker's name into it again. Designed really by Rob Davio and Craig Vaness, but their manager at the time was Stephen Baker. Each character has their deck of 15 cards, and you just play them and you fight battles in Star Wars. Two-on-two, whatever. You get little sidekicks and strictly card-based. On your turn, you get so many actions, you play cards. They get to play a defense, and you take the difference as damage. This came out as a Transformers version as well. (gasps) What? What? Got it. We can talk. Oh, it's Armada. Okay, never mind. (laughs) Okay, now, lost interest. (laughs) So you've played it, or? No, Armada's trash. Is it? (laughs) Armada was the first Transformers that had been made since, like, basically the original series. And I eagerly anticipated it. And it was, think of the worst tropes of 90s anime, and it's all of them. Hmm. Annoying little kid sidekicks, really obnoxious characters, god-awful animation, terrible toy. Sorry, I'm going to stop ranting. <laughs> the Jason's game might just be a good, little though. bit into it's Transformers. A little bitter. Slightly, just slightly. More recently, they came out with a much improved version called Unmatched. They kind of lost the Star Wars theme, but you get the advantage of having Medusa versus Merlin and King Arthur versus Alice and the Jabberwocky, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee versus Bigfoot sounds like and, a winner. And oh, totally. And yeah. Raptors, yeah. Yeah, they're doing Jurassic World, Jurassic Park. <laughs> Although, sadly, unlike the Funko Pop game, there is not a Golden Girls yeah. expansion yet. yet. I know. Yet. Yeah, yet. it's Don't. coming. <laughs> In the new version, they use a Tannhauser-style line of sight where you can do ranged attacks in anything that matches your color there's also a lot more choke points on the maps and your basically your sidekicks actually do things so when you get a character you almost always get at least one sidekick even if it's the jackalope who comes with bigfoot jabberwock oh the jackalope, jackalope comes with them <laughs> now you're saying the jabberwocky but no, no, yeah, no. The jackalope, yeah the jabberwocky that's hilarious. oh my god it's a, the alice with a big giant cloud sword from you know Final Fantasy VII, oh. one of those kind of swords. Yeah, she, she's a bruiser in the game. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's actually a really good game. The card balance is better thought out, and I'm stunned. I want to play some two-on-two games. Yeah, I finally got to play it. It's a very confined space. Movement is extremely important, and a lot of times you're using your minions to pen in your enemy and just beat the living crap out of them. Yeah. But all the decks play extremely differently. For example, King Arthur and Merlin are all based off of just doing melee combat and then running away and then coming back in and smacking someone and then running away. Alice is like, she's got a mechanic where you can be small to get defensive bonuses <laughs> or big to get attack bonuses. And a bunch of her cards will flip her side. Yeah. Medusa has a bow and it's just plink damage and she can auto hit without any defense to mm. things she can plink. And then she's got these harpies that she can respawn that have one hit point each just to clog Annoying up space and hell. keep you away. Then she's got a couple of turn to stone cards, which if she hits you with them are like half your hit points, at least. And she actually just stoned the Jabberwock in one go. (laughs) I nearly cried. Jason, when you talk about confined space, like this is a six by 10 grid. That's that's in Star Wars Epic Duels, which doesn't really have those choke points. Mm. It's actually just little circles on a map. Oh. It's even smaller in the new game. It uses like Tenhauser line of sight rules, right? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which so makes range really powerful, especially for like Medusa, where it's like 
you look at this, we were playing the side with the castle, and like Medusa's like, cool, I'm parking on this space that has three colors. I can hit any of these three colors every turn. <laughs> it's like, ugh. That one sounds like a lot of fun. I'm anxious to try that out at some point. And that's one where basically the base game has a thing, and then you just buy like an army, quote unquote, which is a couple dudes in their cards. Not really. Each character is its own thing. Okay. If you mix and match, it's each player plays one. Mm -hmm. You could play two, I guess, with, you know, different hands, but it's designed for each player plays one and whatever minion it comes with. So you get two characters. Okay. But they're sold individually, right? So if I went to buy King Arthur. It's a mix. So far, there are three packs available. One of them's four. One of them's Bigfoot and Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. And then one's just Bruce Lee by himself. Bigfoot sure. and Robin Hood comes with a board. So I think the typical is each pair of characters has a board. Okay. Yeah, that was, I, I didn't play the other side of the board, but it was substantially different. Like the positioning and the choke points that Frank was talking about make it a really interesting kind of puzzle. You're like, okay, well, I know I've got this much movement. I can go to this position, but if I do, I might get constrained by all these harpies that are converging on me. Mm-hmm. But I can't be in the purple zone because then Medusa's <laughs> going to hit me every turn. Oh, but wait, this attack lets me move after my attack. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> Until they play the cancel the effects on your card card. You're like, oh no. <laughs> and yeah, there's a lot of interaction. Much Sounds more like than it. No, I like it. Game. I like yeah. the sound of it. I killed Alice. She played the card that allows her to heal, which triggers before you check for the end of game states. So she healed after I killed her. I'm like, Grr! Continuing the trend of pre-painted, beautiful, gorgeous minis, we move on to 2004's HeroScape. HeroScape was released by Hasbro, created by Stephen Baker, Rob Davio. Who's that? <laughs> Craig Van Ness. And essentially, in this game, it's a kind of a quintessential skirmish game. You collectively decide on an amount of points, and then you select squads from an enormous variety of different types of places, right? Some of them are fantasy-based, some are future-based, some are modern times-based, some are ancient history-based. You could have samurais working with death robots, working with dinosaurs on your squad. And it's basically a dice chucker. You're rolling your attack dice, and you're rolling your defense dice. What makes this one interesting, besides the fact that you just had an enormous number of units to select from, was that they had a three-dimensional terrain set, right? You started with these amazing hexes that, like, some of them had different abilities, like sometimes you'd be in water or lava or ice. You would stack them up to have different elevations that would modify your, your line of sight and your movement rules. You had line of sight rules with little references on your squads to say, if you can see this piece of the unit from where you're attacking, you can hit them, which is kind of crazy for like a Hasbro game. <laughs> I played the heck out of this. This game was great. Really easy to pick up and play. Really fun to set up. Not so much fun to put away. <laughs> yeah, there were a ton of expansions. And even with the base game, you got a lot of stackable terrain. Just the table presence on this was off the chart. Yeah, no, it's great. You, you see them, especially at like conventions and people will just combine like multiple sets and make these enormous, like very, very huge amount of variety in the way that it looks. And like, it just looks epic. And it's easy to teach, easy to play. It's just a fun game. It's probably one of the ones I've played the most of. That table space comes at a price of (laughs) Mm -hmm. how do you package this game? Because I think this is one of those games that once you took it out of the box, it didn't go back into the box. (laughs) You could technically, but you were playing a puzzle. Right, you were Tetrising it back in there. At that point, you were buying a plastic bin. Right. And that's exactly what our friend who still has a whole bunch of it, he just has like giant plastic bins of it that he carries around whenever we play it. But actually the game has a little more credit than a dice chucker. You do have to assign which guys you're moving and pre-plan just a little bit. And that order can really screw you. 
So, I mean, it has a little more thought. But yeah, HeroScape unfortunately no longer exists in its same form. Through the course of its releases, you know, beyond the unique things they made from their own ideas, they did expand it into Marvel characters, which were comically overpowered. And they expanded it to even D&D figures, which was near kind of the end of its life cycle. Yeah. You can still find them on eBay. The prices seem to vary quite a lot based on rarity. But the system got re-implemented by Magic the Gathering Arena of the Planeswalkers, which I was super excited to see because it, it comes with like two pieces of that old hex terrain and a whole bunch of garbage cardboard versions of it. Yeah. Pre-painted, quote-unquote, figures that were really bad of the Planeswalkers themselves. And the new wrinkle they added was the Planeswalkers can cast spells that summon creatures and attack each other. The game is horrifically unbalanced. Wow. <laughs> like, Ow. it is so bad. Ch- Chandra and Jace just steamroll everybody. It is awful. In every way, it just reminded me of what I loved about HeroScape. And because it didn't have it? Because it didn't have it, yeah. I don't think we'll ever get pre-painted miniatures of that quality or that price point ever again. No, no one can do that. No, no, no. We need to convince Leagues of Legends yes. to make that game. <laughs> oh, yes, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they could do it. Joe, right, make a petition. I'm signing it right I'm now. I'm just saying. <laughs> based on their work with uh, Next Next versus versus Minions, Minions, they totally mm-hmm. could. So the next game on our list is Tannhauser, released in 2017, published by Fantasy Flight Games, designed by Wilm Grossman and Stevie Poli. We've kind of mentioned Tannhauser a couple of times already on this podcast. In Tannhauser, right, you are either some good guys... Or some Nazis. Uh, and the Nazis are kind of strange and mystical and scientific. And one of them can like kind of cast spells or like yeah. has weird mystic artifacts. Or you can be good old Americans <laughs> yep. functionally. By which Joe means the Reich versus the Union. Sure. Right. Totally sure. not the same yeah, thing. Totally sure. different. Right. The big thing that it kind of brought to the skirmish game space was the way its line of sight rules work. So each of the spaces on the board, right? And the board would be arranged like, hey, you're in like a mansion. There are a bunch of rings representing individual spaces. You're in a big room, there'll be a, a series of rings that kind of represent the room that you could be in. Maybe it's a three by three grid that, that, that's a relatively moderately sized room. And then each of the doors, that ring will have actually two different colors on it. It'll have the color of the room that you're in, and then also probably the color of the hallway that leads off of that door. So you can look at any individual space and tell what any other space can see from that space. And it's an extremely clever idea. Lots of games have stolen it. It's pretty much the best thing that came out of Tannhauser. Uh, that's awesome, because line of sight in general is just, there are very few good solutions to it, and that seems like a good solution to it. Oh, absolutely. And, and the game itself is, you know, one of those super crunchy, hyper-detailed things where you have a dozen different characters with 87 different cardboard tokens about the equipment they have and the powers they have. Give your squad, you change them out. I mean, that's at this point, we're pretty typical. Yeah. It's classic skirmish. The feel of the game was good. The line of sight rules was really innovative. In general, the game is pretty decent. There's nothing from a gameplay standpoint that super stands out. The theme is very, that's very What are the worst line of sight rules you know of? True line of sight. Yeah, where ugh. you would figure out where the figure's Blah. head was Blah. and oh try my. and draw a line to see what? if you could see any parts of the opponent's yeah, you'd figure. Come, you'd have to get down to the table and be like, okay, cool, now I'm looking at the Space Marines view. Oh, I can see the edge of that Carnifex over that building, so therefore I can shoot it. Although, yeah. my personal favorite is, I do have a game called Battle of Stan Ray, which is a Japanese mech game. There's Tell me Jason's more, Frank. Part, and yeah, it comes with a little periscope. <laughs> you put it down at your mech's level. <laughs> see if you could actually have hit that part that you rolled that you hit. That's great. Oh my gosh, I love it. So going back to Tannhauser, the yeah, game has oh yeah. lots of crunch. It has lots of options. Like out of the box, the game is a very decent game, but it didn't really do anything to stand out. It feels very much 
think about it, it feels very Hellboy-y in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Weird, science-y Reich, and then good old boy Americans, Americans with guns. With guns. Yep. Yeah. So next is a game that I have mentioned a number of times on the podcast because it's kind of my favorite, and it does some pretty interesting things, so I'm going to talk about it. This is Malifaux. I like to describe it as a Victorian steampunk cowboy magic martial arts zombie game. Sure. Published by Weird Games. Originally in 2009, second edition 2013, third edition 2019. Designers Nathan Carolyn, Eric Johns, and Dan Weber. And of course, they've had additional designers coming in for later editions. I own some Malfo figures, I'll have you know. I know. You have played about a game and a half of I've Malifo. played about a game and a half of Malfo. <laughs> Mike has played more than that. I've played a bunch. I'm still not very good at it. I can say, right before Brian kind of gets into it, their sculpts are gorgeous. They have such great sculpts. They make less great decisions about the sprueing of those sculpts but but the sculpts when you put them together are really nice there's a couple things that make Malifaux interesting to me it's a skirmish game it's going to be like five to ten miniatures on a side mostly as joe has said the miniatures are gorgeous and have a ton of character they are very fiddly to put together although they've gotten a lot better in recent years when they were first getting them made The people who were doing the cuts on the sprues didn't have any real sense of how things worked. So there were a lot of things where you would have like someone's head in three pieces that you had to glue together. Uh, It was bad. Person's tiny beard. Yes, Jan Lowe's beard is legendary. A couple things that are, are really interesting about it to me is first off, it uses cards instead of dice, which of course immediately appealed to me. It's functionally a standard deck of playing cards. The suits are different, but they translate. And so if I have an attack value of six and you have a defense of four, We each flip a card, which gives us a number from 1 to 13, add it to our stat, and that's the result you get to determine if you hit or miss. But you also have a hand of cards, which you can use, like if you flip a card and you really want something to hit, you can cheat a a card in to replace the one you flipped. So you have a limited resource of control over what luck gives you, and there's a lot of tactical decision-making there. The other thing that I really like about it is in most miniatures games, I am building my list. This is my list that does all the things. You have your list of miniatures that does all the things. We get together, we figure out what the objectives are, and then we throw our lists at each other. In Malifaux, you basically choose a faction, then you figure out what the objectives are. Are we trying to just kill each other? Are we trying to hold locations? Are we trying to put markers in certain places on the board? And then once you know more or less what you're trying to do and what your opponent is doing, then you build your list. So you get to really tweak and customize what you're bringing into a given game based on what you're trying to accomplish. It is definitely on the miniatures game side of things. There's a lot of tape measure measuring position is really important, but it has a ton of character. There's a lot of different factions. There's a a crew which is basically Jack the Ripper, except after killing the uh, prostitutes, he resurrects them as zombies. So that's hilarious, if not entirely appropriate. We have uh, basically a, a Yakuza gang bunch of old west gunfighter monster hunters you have a wide variety of stuff available it's not a game that you can play that well casually there's a low barrier to entry cost wise because you need like one box of miniatures and a deck of cards and you're good to go but uh, it does require some commitment because there's a lot of rules and a lot of detail the third edition that came out last year has cleaned up a lot of stuff and made it a lot more approachable but it's still kind of a commitment to get into i think it's well worth it I can recommend you to several other podcasts rather than going on for another 45 minutes about it here, but it is highly recommended. So I desperately want to get into this game with you, and I've tried probably harder than most of our friend group, but I would argue that like many miniature games, that that one box entry point is kind of a false start because Malifaux does not have this as bad as, say, 40k, but like a lot of the smaller one unit pieces that come in boxes by themselves 
are so vital and overly powered that I I feel like it kind of need them. That was definitely true in second edition. Actually, third edition is a lot better on that. Mm -hmm. There is a lot more benefit for taking a particular master that does a certain thing and getting all the models that go with that master. The synergy within Cruise is a lot stronger. So that's much less of an issue now. I do love synergy. I know. I've also noticed that they've, in third edition, started repackaging some of the things. So, like, in yeah. second edition, there was a figure that would be sold by itself. Now it's a pack of two with another unit that was sold by itself. Yeah, because it was really a pain for retailers with the number of SKUs they had out there. I will play some third edition with you, and we'll see what you think. Excellent. Those kinds of skirmish games are not for me, like like Warhammer or all that kind of stuff, because I also get pretty invested in my units, and I'm like, you know what? No, I'm good. Chris is trying to suck me back into kill team. I might end up making a squad just because I have so many you have figures a million already. Ultramarines. One other thing I will mention about Malifaux is that unlike most of these games, it is entirely possible to be wiped off the board and still win the game. Because Mm -hmm. killing things is not a victory condition in most cases. I actually did that in a game a few years back. All of my dudes were killed in, like, turn four. And then I'm like, well, turns out I scored all the points for all these other things, and you didn't, so I win anyway. They actually have a pretty wide variety of objectives that are not just kill all the things. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might have, like, priority target where you get points for killing a specific unit. They've got King of the Hill style. They've got capture and return missions. Yeah, there's a wide variety of scenarios, and they come out with a new package of them every year to sort of give you more options. So it's really well supported. It's made right here outside Atlanta. So uh, I will talk about it at length, but not now. So think about it if you want to get into a miniatures game. Brian will be more than happy to play anybody, anywhere. Just email him. It'll be great. Uh, by anywhere, he means in Atlanta. And you'll also probably win because as much as I love this game, I'm still terrible at it. So leaving Brian's uh, love fest for Malifaux, we'll move on to uh, another game that actually had pre-painted miniatures in the original version. We're talking about Claustrophobia by Croc. Don't ask me what his last name is. He just goes by Croc. Released in 2009 by uh, Asmodee, believe it or not. When we liked Asmodee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the golden years. <laughs> the setting of this game is really kind of bizarre. There's two factions, the humans versus the demons, basically. The odd thing is humans have invaded hell and they're taking over the territory. Because they're like, mm, we ran out of room. We well, want. Have we ruined Earth that badly that hell is now appealing real estate? <laughs> Apparently. They founded this new Jerusalem and they're encroaching into hell. And the demons are like, uh, this, this, this is ours? What are, you, what are you doing? So I like to think of it as the humans are the bad guys. And the demons are just protecting what's theirs. <laughs> but it's very asymmetric. The humans start with a certain number of units. They usually start with a redeemer unit that's kind of like, think of him as like a cleric, right? He's a warrior priest that has, sometimes has magical abilities. A lot of times has equipment. And he drags along with him a bunch of convicts that have no choice. They have to help him. And so the human player will roll dice on their turn, and the dice will get slotted into a specific stat line for each of their units. And that sometimes that means they move more. Sometimes it means they're more defensive. Sometimes it means they're more uh, attack-heavy. And they have to assign it each turn, and then they do whatever their objective is, right? Usually it's move along the tiles until you find a specific tile or before you find a specific thing or kill a specific monster. Meanwhile, the demon player has their own board, they're rolling dice, but they're trying to get certain dice to activate certain abilities. Maybe that's summoning demons or troglodytes onto the board. Maybe it's giving them buffs, right? So maybe they move more, or they're frenzied, and they're better at attacking. Sometimes if you get a total of 12 on your dice, you can actually just do a damage to someone. The interesting balance to the game is that the humans start as powerful as they're ever going to be. They have all of their stats available, they have all their abilities, and the demons start very, very weak, right? Because they have to build up over turns. As the humans take damage, 
they have to assign it to a stat line, and now that stat line is gone. So if I assign it to the one value on my Redeemer, I can never use that stat line ever again. And there's no healing in the game as far as I remember. So it's the humans keep getting weaker and weaker and weaker. The demons get stronger and stronger and stronger. So where the game gets real interesting is that middle point where they're both equivalent and the demons are trying to stop the humans from accomplishing whatever their objective is. So the humans really have to push in and fast just, and get it done. It's not just kill demons. It's yeah. generally a get to this place, get out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go through 12 different tiles and then find an exit or something right. like that. Yeah. Right. And so like to me, it's a very fascinating balancing game because, yeah, the humans are like, oh, my gosh, I got to rush, rush, rush. The demons are just trying to do a delaying action until they're strong enough to just wreck the hell out of them. It's also really interesting because the way the game works is you do explore. I mean, you're flipping up tiles and going into unknown spaces, some of which spawn demons, have special effects. There's a hint of a dungeon crawl, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely most of the game tends to take place over the areas which are already explored, which is why we kind of stuck into the skirmish game. (laughs) But also each tile is a space. Yep. And yet it still feels like tactics. You can block up and clog up tiles. Each tile has a very strong limit of how many people can be on it. Uh, There are natural choke points and all that kind of thing you see from a skirmish game. And it does it really well with abstracting that to one tile per space. Now, Jason, you and I have played this, I think, exactly one time. And I remember absolutely nothing about the experience except for our previously mentioned love of vacuum-formed plastic. Oh, yes, yes. Now, this has little trays that you put your character sheets in, and the character sheets are little pegboards. And it really does have the feel of one of those old Dungeon Delve games. It's it's fantastic. The 1643, you have that one? I do, too. Okay, got it. Yeah, but the... uh... Yeah, to, to build off of Mike's point, whenever you're blocking out a stat line because your human took damage, it's like a spiky nail you drive into the into the little board. It's it's great. It's got a great tactical feel. I'm actually sad they took that out of the newer version. Oh. Yeah, it, they, the boards are nice, but they, they lost the vacuum form stuff. I'm like, oh, that just was so much no fun. love of the vacuum form. <sighs> yeah, I, it was it was a loss, and they lost the pre-painted. But mm. anyway, I guess for the 10 year anniversary, because in 2019, uh, Monolith released a new implementation of the game, also designed by Croc, but um, helped by. Laurent Pouchain, where they basically took it, kind of cleaned up the rules. There's not a lot of differences. Like, the art's different. Uh, the miniatures are a little more detailed, but not pre-painted. They added a, a card mechanic for the humans, which they can use for a benefit, or they can use to mitigate their dice. So, hey, I really need to get a six because I need my guy to do something. This card will allow me to do that. For the demon side, they've cleaned up the board where they basically looked at all the options that the demon player had in the previous version of the game. They're like, hey, these three things no one ever uses. So they just removed them, right, to kind of reduce complexity. And then they added abilities to specific monsters on their cards. So you have different different things you can do while keeping a lot of the tactical capabilities of the previous version of the game. It's weird. The, the 1643 version is kind of like people don't like it, but for dumb reasons. Like, I don't like the art. I don't like that they're not pre-painted anymore. No one seems to have a problem with the combat system or the changes that they made there, however slight. But yeah, like uh, I was reading reviews last night. I'm like, what did people think? Oh, they're all complaining about dumb stuff. Okay. <laughs> Art is not dumb. <laughs> Art is very important to well, a Well, no, like it, it was very, I felt very petty complaints. Wait, people are, are petty on the internet? <laughs> Weird. Well, just this one person. Oh, okay. All right, good. <laughs> Oh, and it was a Kickstarter. So you know people were really good and gentle. I played against Courtney. I got soundly trounced. I had two very bad draws. Um, Basically, it was the intro mission. I was just trying to stop Courtney from getting to a certain number of tiles. And uh, the two tiles that he drew right before the end were, when a monster moves here, they take a damage. Back to back. And it was a bottleneck. So the only places I could spawn instantly killed most of my monsters. (laughs) Yeah, I lost that one real bad. 
But uh, the system I really liked. I think they did some interesting things with kind of the streamlining of it. I think the demon player has a little more agency because you can store up dice for future turns. So you can say, well, I don't have to rely on getting two sixes on my next turn. I've already got a six. I'll store it. And then on my next turn, I'll roll more dice and hopefully get another six. Sounds good. Getting away from humans invading hell, (laughs) uh, we're going to go back to the classic science fiction tradition of people flying around in spaceships and blowing each other up. The one I wanted to bring attention to here is a little number called Battle Beyond Space, which is a Z-Man game in 2012 designed by our very own Frank Branham. Uh, yeah. (laughs) So I guess we're sneaking this one in. Yeah, I mean, it seemed appropriate. I mean, you know, it's a relatively simple shooter, not to, you know, put down any of your abilities. It's a brain-dead simple game. Just basically run a bunch of spaceships at each other, but it does some pretty cool things, and it very much has that 1970s cut-rate action movie Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it was kind of based on my house rules for an old 70s game called Carrier Strike, which is still one of my favorites. Michael Gray is God. Just (laughs) saying that right there. Uh, The idea is basically to do a game with 80 spaceships in one big free-for-all battle, because I really like free-for-all battles, and then get it done in 30, 45 minutes, which, yeah, it does. And it does that by breaking them into three squadrons. And you can't really do much with a squadron except fly it straight forward, shoot at things in front of you, and then turn. And then you get to move one of your capital ships that in Battlestar Galactica style can kind of move around slowly and pick off a unit or two. And that's the game. I mean, literally add some special powers on top of that. And and yeah, there had to be special powers. In this case, the special powers were all, it's themed around 80s science fiction movies. There is something that is clearly not a death blossom <laughs> <laughs> yes legally distinct from. from a death blossom is there an annoying robot sidekick there's no annoying <sighs> but there is one guy who's very the earthers because i needed a stupid name are very pilot centric <laughs> they have all the good pilots there's one that's kind of the siren siren from uh, battle beyond the stars which obviously is it may have inspired the title may have inspired else. the title it's a fun game. I mean, it's a quick playing, throw spaceships at each other. Ships go burning into the discard pile so quickly. It's not even And funny. sometimes on a move, it's like, oh, he crashes in an asteroid wheel. <laughs> yeah, because it's like you have this array. You, you know, you array your squadron at the start of the game, and that's the relative positions they're going to stay in. So if they all move in this direction and there happens to be a capital ship or an asteroid or something there, that ship is no longer part of the squadron. <laughs> So yeah, air traffic control is a key thing. I mean, it's actually a surprisingly fun game for being so brain dead stupid. It's yeah. really simple. I mean, if, if you have 45 minutes and you want a bunch of people to have a space battle, it's, it's a good choice. Because I hate my wallet, I also got into a game called Star Wars X-Wing Miniatures Game, released in 2012 by Fantasy Flight, designed by Jason Little. In X-Wing, you're flying things like, oh, I don't know, X-Wings, and trying to basically destroy all of your opponent's ships. That's really it. The original version of the game did have missions that were released in the the boxes. I don't think I've ever met a person who's played any of them, (laughs) but they do exist. It is a down and dirty just, I'm trying to destroy all of your ships before you destroy all of mine. And, you know, since it's Fantasy Flight, let's slap a Star Wars theme on it and go for it. In the original version of the game, it was just the Rebels versus the the Galactic Empire. The game's broken up into a couple of phases. In the first phase, you're taking these little maneuver dials that are unique to your ships that will tell you what kind of maneuvers you can do. You can go straight three, you can go left two. Some of the maneuvers are white, some are green, and some are red. If it's a white maneuver, nothing extraordinary happens. If it's a red maneuver, it means it's difficult for your ship and your pilot gets stressed doing it, which means they can't take an extra action when they activate. 
green clears the red. So if you do a red maneuver one turn, next turn you do a green maneuver, it clears the, the stress that you had. What's interesting about the game is so you, you set all the maneuver, maneuver dials for all your ships. After that's done, you activate all your ships, and you do it in the order of the person who has the worst pilot skill that's piloting the ships. So the people that are really bad at flying get to move first. Get to. Get to, yeah, yes. Have yes, to. Have to. Sure, have to. And then the people who have the best pilot skill in the next phase get to shoot first. So you basically have a situation where the rookies are just kind of flying all over the place, crashing into things likely. <laughs> and then the aces come up behind them. And they're like, great, you're in my sights now. I'm going to blow you out of the sky before you ever activate. I actually really like that system. Yeah, just no, as it's, a, it's a, super clever. A way to simulate that experience i feel like is actually really well done i'm a little surprised we haven't seen it before 2012 i was into x-wing for a while but i couldn't sustain it i mean the miniatures are really nice they're pre-painted yeah. to a high standard oh yeah literally any ship you can think of at this point has been released in x-wing and some things that i didn't even know existed <laughs> i was like oh yeah i mean this? there's this one ship that you know was in the background for three tenths of a second in episode two Recently, they've released the second edition of X-Wing, mostly because they needed to do some fine-tuning and balancing, because it got real bad. The power creep in the game was so comical that you never saw anyone flying X-Wings in the game called X-Wing. Jason, Fantasy Flight had a problem with power creep? (laughs) I know. It's a first time for everything, right, Mike? So they basically redid everything, which was great for them. It was like, hey, everybody, junk all your previous stuff and buy new stuff. But they did take the opportunity to make it so now it's all app-driven for building your squads. So they can change the point values of the upgrades and the pilots and the ships as they need to fine-tune. That's good. Which I think is a good idea. Yeah. Made me real angry with, like, hundreds of hundreds of cards that are now useless. But I think... Overall, it was better for the game. They also did some rebalancing where now X-Wings aren't total trash. They also took the opportunity to update some of the older sculpts, which was real frustrating for me because I'm obsessed. Gotta catch them all. They released a B-Wing that's slightly turned. I'm like, oh, I have to have it. (laughs) But it's a fun game. It's very easy to teach people. There's a lot of variety. It's thematically fun. And, you know, they've got some bigger ships in now as well. You get like the Millennium Falcon and uh, that kind of stuff. You have uh, Corellian Corvettes Mm -hmm. and um, something called the uh, Raider that they made up for the Empire because, like, we don't have an alternative. So here you go. Mm -hmm. Since second edition has come out, they've also added more factions because, of course, you need to sell more stuff so you have the galactic empire the rebellion scum and villainy which is basically an excuse to toss every bounty hunter they've ever had yeah, you in have Star to have Wars. a boba fett in there somewhere oh so you get boba fett's flying hairdryer <laughs> <laughs> basically okay and then they've added of course the resistance and the um first order and now they've just released the galactic republic and the separatist alliance which I, I look at those ships, I'm like, when was this in the movie? I do not remember this in the slightest, but it is a vast, sprawling game. Here's the funny part. I got into it because I wanted the actual figures. I was like, oh, I don't care about the game. I just pre-painted Star Wars figures. That sounds great. Sure. Then I was like, I've got a lot of these. I should try the game. Oh, crap, this is fun. Damn yeah. it. <laughs> sort of on the opposite end of that extreme a free willy miniatures game where they're not actually trying to sell you everything no, all over again. I don't, that doesn't compute uh, at all. I, w- I want to mention <laughs> Gaslands, which is tremendous fun. It's basically a sort of Car Warsy game, but it, they don't have any kind of pre made miniatures or anything else like that. You're basically taking your existing collection of Matchbox and Hot Wheels cars or going to the dollar store and buying a box of cheap knockoffs, whatever, paint them up with battle scars and little machine guns and top and then spiky bits there on the front. There are people who make 3D printed, you know, add-ons for <laughs> little Hot Wheels cars. Oh yeah, no, they land. absolutely That's do. And some of the conversions are yeah. amazing. And then you just race around blowing each other up. It's a lot of fun. And basically all the manufacturers produce is a rule book and some turning templates. 
And, you know, I think they have some terrain and stuff now, but basically it's a really cheap game to get into, especially if you already have some of those cars. And it's a lot of fun. And so much better than Car Wars. I mean, it really, in terms of the fun per time, it's not that detailed, but detailed enough. Yeah, I mean, it's just enough to get into, hey, I want to shoot rocket launchers from cars at other cars. <laughs> Go. Yeah. It's a lot of fun and, and easy to get into. Although I did just back the Car Wars 6 edition Kickstarter, so we'll see what that looks yeah, like. Yeah, totally. Can you recreate Mad Max? That's really the only thing I need to I do. mean, sure. <laughs> I don't know if they have rules for a guitar player with a flamethrower. Um, they but, need them. I mean, there's certainly got to be some house rules on it. <laughs> I'm sure somebody somewhere has done that. Oh, I, I, I have Needs no doubt. Needs to be Cirque du guys on poles. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't count. Exactly. So, you remember... 10 minutes ago, I mentioned that I was really into multiplayer free-for-all games mm-hmm. that are kind of crazy and light. So Wildlands was released in 2018, produced by a publisher known for hardcore war games, Osprey Games, Ooh. and a designer, Martin Wallace, known for hardcore Euro games like Steam and Brass. So no one bought this. <laughs> <laughs> no one but you. Yeah, I... Martin Wallace has done some really bizarre games, especially going back to like 1630-something. That is the name, 1630-something. Nice. And this is a skirmish game in a big dungeon. You get a team of five with pretty much just one stat and then a unique deck of cards for your faction. So each faction has its own deck of cards, minis, and everything. And you also get a location deck. When you start, you're handed out your location deck and you secretly place all five of your characters somewhere on the board. And uh, you also have a bunch of gems that are placed by other players scattered around the board in the least accessible places possible. You get a point for getting a gem or killing uh, an opponent. That's it. And, you know, first five wins. It's diceless. You have cards that are tailored to your faction. They're the exact same actions. And there are only a few actions, you know, certain types of attacks, area attacks. There's flight for the couple of creatures that can fly and then you turn in sets of cards to collect your gem but what happens on your turn is you pick a guy you must reveal at the start of each turn and then just start moving and taking actions with them so at the start you'll have like four guys each person will have one guy on the map but if somebody moves through your space it's like ooh, no i'm here you just turn up announce that you're right there ambush (laughs) you've been hiding and ambush them and immediately take a couple shots and there are ambush cards that let you interrupt nice they can interrupt back But also, since it takes a few hits to kill somebody, you can have a fight going on in your space and going, hmm, okay, I'm in this space. I'm going to shoot at him. Interrupting (laughs) the other person so you can kill Steel. And then you've suddenly got a slightly wounded person that you just have to finish off with a second point. So, I mean, it's a bloodbath. (laughs) And it's fun and capricious and really simple and clear-cut. And the factions play very differently, even though the only difference is the numbers on the cards and the hit points on the characters because literally there are no stats for a character except their hit points (laughs) and whatever the cards say in case you haven't noticed there's a theme with me i like miniatures and i like mechs so let's talk (laughs) about gkr heavy hitters gkr stands for giant killer robots i don't know why they didn't just call it giant killer robots that's a much better name in my my opinion certainly gets right to the point yeah really it's like that's an instant back right there came out in 2018 released by what a workshop the same people who made the hobbit movies they're in board games now let's let's call them the same people who did the lord of the rings movies just <laughs> yeah let's go there and let's not talk we, about them you don't think the hobbit movies were amazing <laughs> <laughs> amazing is certainly a word that could be used to describe them gkr is set in the way future you're basically participating in a sports arena you pick a pilot with their own special ability you'll be picking a mech that has its own layout of equipment and each mech has three support mechs with it 
your goal is to either be the last man standing by destroying all the other mechs or <laughs> trying to support your sponsor by tagging these ruined buildings with their, their advertising. And whoever gets to destroy four buildings by uh, tagging them often enough wins the game. It's a very odd game. It's kind of lighthearted in terms of you're just stomping around wrecking stuff. But it's designed to prioritize one of the two win conditions, right? It's like, do I feel like just destroying everybody or do I want to focus on getting my robots to tag things? There's a lot of positioning and, you know, the bigger mechs can push the smaller mechs around. When you're doing combat, it's basically based off of spending energy that your mech has a limited amount of that recharges every turn. And then the weapons themselves have a speed value. The fastest speed goes first. So it's entirely possible for you to kill someone before they get their shot off. Excellent. But yeah, I mean, that's really about it. Kind of its claim to fame is that the mechs themselves kind of continuing an old tradition I thought was over. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, they're pre-painted and they're... They are very elaborately pre-painted. Nice. Eight to ten inches tall with decals and shading. And oh, the game is freaking gorgeous. Shiny. Table presence. And people are just like, what is this? And the mech designs are great. They're super non-traditional. When they were showing it off at Gen Con, I took a picture and sent it to a coworker. And he said, I don't know what I'm looking at. I had to explain to him (laughs) it was a mech. Because they're like, you know, backwards legs and like they're really weirdly shaped and asymmetric and they're they're great. I love them. They're full of personality. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and even the small robots, the sidekick robots are pretty nice. They have a basic shading. Yeah. I'm seeing a single color plastic, but they look decent. But nothing compared to those full-size mechs. The, all the mechs play very differently. It's a very, I'd say, fairly light game. Oh, it's a very light game. But I enjoy it. It's fun. One of the cool thing about it is you do program movement. Mm-hmm, that's Because true. you do kind of, if you go back uh, to our program movement episode, probably one we should have stuck in there. I mean, you're basically planning out your entire turn and then you each card has an initiative value on it and you just kind of run through it to see what order things happen. Obviously, there are a ton of miniatures games out there and a ton of skirmish games out there if you're looking for the more skirmishy war game kind of thing. But one that I wanted to mention because uh, we hinted at it earlier when talking about hero clicks is Marvel Crisis Protocol, which is a pretty new one. It was released in 2019 from Atomic Mass Games, designed by Will Pagani and Will Schick. And this Hmm. is basically a modern skirmish game using licensed Marvel miniatures that you assemble and paint, but they're really nice miniatures. The core box is basically your core Avengers, Black Widow, Captain America, Iron Man. Then you have like Dr. Octopus and Red Skull and Ultron. And it's basically a tabletop skirmish game with rules for destructible terrain. (laughs) You get power points every turn that you can use to do your special abilities. And every time you take damage, you gain power. (laughs) So getting hit makes you more able to do stuff. I haven't played it myself yet. I've heard a lot of really good things about it. The miniatures are very nice. And so if you're interested in superheroes and not trying to dig out a bunch of randomly available hero clicks, it might be worth looking at. Uh, So yeah, that's the skirmish games we wanted to talk about. Obviously, there's a bunch of them out there that we haven't had time to cover. I didn't get to go into the hills, rise wild. (laughs) Eh, Well, there's a lot of stuff out there. It's surprising how old this genre is. Well, I mean... War, war never changes. I mean, it's it. one of the one of humanity's first pastimes. Yeah. When you when you don't have the energy to go out and kill people, you simulate it. And yeah, there's a big Fallout miniatures game. Just to just in That's case true. you did that. That's true. Those are nice. Any kind of genre you want, there is probably a skirmish miniatures game for it. If there are favorites of yours that we haven't discussed, please let us know. Facebook, Twitter, any of those places. We always like to hear from you. We are starting to run out of the heavy hitters on the poll results, so. If you haven't been back to AscentOfBoardGames.com in a while and you want to jump on there and give us some opinions, we'll have some new poll options and you can tell us what you want to hear us ramble on about for a while. 
Please say it's more Malifaux. <laughs> or Arkham Horror Card Game. I'm, or, I'm done. Well, there's a separate podcast for that, there isn't there? There will be, in fact. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Joe, Chase, and I are working on Plum Depths, which will be a podcast where we basically just torture Joe with Arkham Horror Card Game. So, uh, yeah, let us know what you want to hear, and we will talk at you again next month. Have fun. Bye-bye. Bye. Play games. Play games. <laughs> We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. I'll stop now. No, Thank you for playing. Mike, stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs>